We love to assign nicknames to people. And so uh, Barbara sometimes becomes Babs. Alexandria becomes Lexi. You know, Benjamin becomes Benji. Uh, Robert becomes Bob or Bobby. And then there's, you know, like old school nicknames like Chip and Biff and Skip. And some of the older people are laughing at this because they used to do this to people. And uh, T-Bone and Bugs and things like that. Uh, My dad, my uncle and my dad, uh, same way, my uncle Jerry, my dad Barry, their nicknames were Jazz and Baz. And so old school nicknames. Um, we all secretly want our names to be reflective of who we are. And God operates in the exact same way. In Scripture, we see these descriptive names of God that represent his character and his attributes. It reveals to us who he really is. And so when we read the stories of Scripture... We see this, and occasionally in Scripture, he even lets people give him names that are reflective of his character in Scripture. And so there's nothing arbitrary about the names of God, and we see these things, these descriptive names of God revealed in the stories of Scripture. And so in this little series we're doing, we're looking at the names of God, and we're asking the question, what's in a name? And we're basing this series out of sort of our central text is Psalm chapter 9, verses 7 to 10, and in particular verse 10, which says, Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name trust in you. And so if you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 8, and we've been kind of living in the, in the throes of this ongoing story, this developmental story in the life of one of the patriarchs, we call them, one of the old school kind of people that God continues to work with today, these last few weeks, and we've been seeing the names of God here. So in Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai. In Hebrew it says, I am El Shaddai, the God Almighty, who walk walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down. And God said to him, have you, ever, have you ever spent time worshiping God on the ground on your face? It's a great thing to do. I do that sometimes. Sometimes I do it right here in this sanctuary. Great thing to do. It reminds us very dramatically with our body. It reminds us who God is and who we are in relationship to him. And so Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. 
I will make you very fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So God starts out chapter 17 by introducing himself to Abram and saying, this is what you can call me. He's had previous encounters with Abram, but in those encounters, he never gives himself a name. This time he says, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. And I'm guessing up until this point, as as Abram would describe to his wife Sarai, which I assume he did from chapters 12 and chapter 15, he would say, and I don't know what he said, but he might have said something like this to Sarai. He might have said, I spoke today with the divine presence. The divine being interacted with me. And now here is a God who is saying, I am El Shaddai. And in Hebrew, Shaddai means, if we were to sort of amplify the understanding of it a little bit, it means he's completely nourishing. It means he's providing. It means he is the God who supplies his people with all their needs. And it's connected to the image of a mother meeting the needs of their children. And so he's saying to Abram, he's saying, Abram, I am the all-nourishing God. I am the all-providing God. I am almighty God. I am El Shaddai. I am the God who has the ability to fulfill every promise that he has ever made to his people. And just this morning, we know an election was called in our country. There's going to be a ton of promises that are going to come our way in the next month or so. And some of them will be fulfilled by the different parties. Some of them won't. That's kind of the nature of human beings. God is very different than that. He fulfills every promise he has ever made. He is the God who keeps his word, who overcomes every obstacle, who is more than equal to every occasion because he is El Shaddai, the God who provides the almighty God. Nothing is too hard for him. And he says to Abram, He says in verses 7 and 8, in fact, I am the only God you will ever need. You'll be tempted at points to worship other gods, just like so many in our culture are, worshiping the gods we have here in North America. But I am the only God you will ever need. And in light of this declaration to Abram of who he is, he says, in light of this, I'm going to make three promises to you. And over the course of Abram's lifetime, God fulfills all three of these promises. And we see the first one in verses 2 to 4 and in verse 6. He says to him, I will confirm my covenant. Remember in chapter 12 and in chapter 15, he gives this covenant, which is much more than an agreement. Agreements can change over time. They can have an end date. A covenant with God doesn't have an end date. It doesn't change. He says, I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. 
nations. And then verse 6, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. So just remember, I know many of you know this story. This is not being said to someone who's sort of starting out in life, who's 20 or so years of age. This is someone who at this point is 99 years of age, who has never produced an heir as they had originally tended and as God had intended. And this is, of course, in our understanding, in the normal course of events, a person at that age is not going to have, a chil- have children and have multitudes of heirs. But he says to him, you are going to have countless descendants. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. In fact, kings will come from you. And in a sense, I was thinking about this, in a sense, not not totally lining up, but in a sense, he kind of makes these kinds of promises to us. And I'd like to talk for just a minute about how this could play out in your life and in our congregation. So for example... If you're a parent here today, or a grandparent, if you're an aunt or an uncle, or perhaps you're a person of influence that impacts a family, perhaps in your history, the parenting you experienced was not pretty. Perhaps you didn't come from a place that was God-honoring when you were raised, and that it didn't empower you, the example you went through, It didn't empower you to live a different life. And quite honestly, in your family tree, if it was being described, the bark is excessively rough, and you got a lot of splinters on your family tree. In Christ, this is a beautiful thing, in Christ, you can grow a totally new limb on your family tree. And you can pray and you can say, Jesus, would you help me? Would you empower me as El Shaddai, as the God who provides, as the all-nourishing God, as the all-powerful God? Would you provide for me the power to build a different and an altered family history? And may it move down through the generations to a thousand generations. One that will change the course of human history. Will you, and you can, with the help of El Shaddai, the Almighty God, launch or relaunch generations of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that started with you as a person, perhaps a person that, maybe you don't have your own family, but you're a person of influence. Or maybe you are a parent, or you're a grandparent, or an aunt or an uncle. And because you have chosen to, to live differently, because you have given your life to Christ, because El Shaddai has transformed you, you are not your past. You are not bound by your past. And you don't need to live the way your past would indicate and most naturally move you towards. You can start a brand new day in Christ. Secondly, I think this is a powerful reminder to us that when we share the news about Jesus, the story of Jesus with someone, and that someone bows their knee, 
maybe literally or figuratively, but surrenders their life to Christ and becomes a follower of Christ, this is incredibly significant because it has the power not only to change that person's life, but to change the course of many people's lives ultimately. And there's nothing quite like becoming a spiritual father or a spiritual mother to someone being an influencer in the life of someone that becomes a follower of Jesus. And you can pray and say, Jesus, would you give me a legacy of spiritual descendants? Believers who who give their life to Christ and you help them as they grow and they begin to mature in their relationship with Christ. And then they begin to repeat the pattern in others. There's something very exciting about that journey in the life of people. In fact, just in the last week and a half, I've had contact with two people where I'm in that process, just the starting process. And I'm excited about what God might do. I think that's really cool. It's a wonderful thing to do. And so what God promises to Abram, in a certain sense, he promises to us. We can have spiritual descendants that come to Christ, that change generations of people to come. And I understand each generation has to make their own choice, but, but, but we can be part of that generational change that changes history. Second promise, he says, is a new name. And we see this In verse 5, he says to him, No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Abram literally means from the Hebrew, exalted father. And and I, I have to think in a certain sense, this naming of Abram probably stung a little bit. Because here he is, he's 99 years of age. And he's not been able to have children as he originally wanted with his wife Sarah. I'm aware of the Ishmael and Hagar thing, but that was them short-circuiting God's plan. At this point in his life, he has not seen what he assumed would be his lot in life with the name that was given him, exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. How would you like to be that, that age and hearing that? And yet God did this. We know this historically. In fact, just a few years ago, Time magazine rightly identified that the three of the major religions of the world, Christianity, Judaism, and all of Islam, all claim Abraham as their father. Abraham in fulfillment of the promise of El Shaddai, is the father of many nations. And many times in Scripture, God does this name thing. Jesus looks at Simon, one of his disciples, one of his leadership team, and he says, you're going to be called Peter, and you're going to be the rock. You're going to kind of be the spokesman for the group. In Revelation chapter 2, we read that we are going to be given new names to go along with our new hearts in Christ, because Jesus has changed us and changed our heart and changed our life here and our eternal destiny, we will be given new names. In Acts chapter 4, 
there's the early church and the community of believers. And there's a guy named Joseph in this early church. You can read the story. And he runs around and he's exercising his spiritual gift, which is encouragement. And he's just encouraging people like crazy. And the, the apostles are watching this guy using his spiritual gift, serving in the way God had called him to do. And he said, hey, you're not going to be called, they say, you're not going to be called Joseph anymore. You're going to be called Barnabas, which literally means son of encouragement. And Jesus changes us when we come to Christ. He does this for our lives. We're marked by new being, with, with new traits, with uh, new qualities in Christ. We become, Scripture says, new creations, new people. And we know, as I've said in this series several times, in Scripture, uh, names have great significance. And so you have a new identity in Christ that's identified through terms like, you are a Christian. You are, the one I will often use, a biblical believer. You are a disciple of Christ. You are a Jesus follower. These names are indicative of your new identity in Christ. There's a third promise. And we see this in verses 7 and 8. He says this. He goes, God says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Think about how mind-blowing this promise is. Just think about this guy. This is an old Bedouin shepherd. He's 99 years old. He lives literally in the middle of nowhere. The middle of nowhere. And he's just living there, and he's just one guy in sort of a sea of humanity whose life prior to God speaking into his life, let's be honest, is rather inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. And God speaks to him in Genesis 12 when he's 75 years of age. God reiterates what he said in chapter 12, later in chapter 15, and now he tells him in chapter 17, and he reminds him and he amplifies the covenant. He says, I am going to covenant with you. In fact, I'm going to make an eternal covenant with you, and I will always be your God, and I will give you the entire land of Canaan, it says in verse 8. And when you listen to the news, remember that promise from God. Remember that. And he gives this old Bedouin shepherd in the middle of nowhere a spectacular new life. You know, all the other small g gods that were worshipped at that time, that are worshipped right here in our culture, right now in history, all the time, demand things of their people. You are going to do this and this and this and this. Back then, for example, the small G gods would say things like, you will sacrifice your children to me on an altar. Or you'll become a temple prostitute to honor me. 
and you will work hard and do all of these things that I subscribe to you, and then maybe, just maybe, if you work really hard and you don't do these things, but you do this whole list of other things, just maybe you'll be acceptable to me. Now, typically, although it still happens, the small g gods of our current time here in North America don't require the sacrifice of children, although it still does happen sometimes. I've seen this. They don't typically ask them to be temple prostitutes, but it still does happen in our day here in North America. But the one thing that they totally have in common is there's this whole list of things that the small g gods say you have to do or this whole list of things that you don't do. Then along comes the God of the Bible. Along comes El Shaddai, Almighty God. And he says, I will be your God, Abraham. And here's the thing that is absolutely different about me than every other small g God in the world. Abraham, you will be justified. In other words, you will be right in right and, and, and healthy and unfettered relationship with me, not based on anything you have done or not done. You will be forgiven exclusively and in right relationship with me based on faith, based on the fact that one day Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come. Your salvation looks forward to the day he will come. He will go to the cross on your behalf. He will die for your sins and he will rise from the dead, just like we sang earlier in the service. He will pull us out of the grave. He ran out of the grave. That was the lines from one of the songs we sang earlier. And so this is completely different for the God of the Bible. Abraham, by faith, we're told in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and in Romans chapter 4, it says Abraham was justified by faith, not by things he did or didn't do. This sets the God of the Bible completely apart from every other religion, every other religious thought pattern in the world. The God of the Bible stands uniquely alone. And it's the same for us. We look back to the day when Jesus did all this. Abraham was looking forward to the day when God would do all this. And so Abraham, by faith, is given this spectacular new life. And so I ask you, how often do you stop and seriously contemplate the new life you have in Christ? To thoughtfully savor, again, how spectacular it is to belong to Jesus Christ. And it's not because you've earned it, and it's certainly not because you deserve it. Because again, as I often say, you're never compared to other people. You're compared to God. And that's why the Bible says every one of us falls woefully short. And so this is why we're only acceptable to God because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And that's why it says in Scripture, you were literally bought with a price. Your life, your eternal life, and this is what he's referring to here in verse 7, this is an everlasting covenant. I will be your God. I'm not going to change the deal up on you. I'm not going to renege on my promise. I'm not going to say, yeah, I'll do this for you, and then oh, I got busy with something else. 
It doesn't work that way with the God of the Bible, with El Shaddai. I am establishing with you an everlasting covenant, an everlasting deal. And you will be redeemed, you will be paid for by Jesus. And in doing this, I am going to impart to you, uh, you, you will be, the scripture says, a new creation. You will have a new mindset. And then there's this incredible action of Jesus where he literally comes and he picks you up out of the kingdom of darkness hopeless situation, bound for hell. He picks you up out of the kingdom of darkness and he puts you in the kingdom of light. And you are possessed by the spirit of God. You're given a new character. You're given a new message. You're given a new voice and your life is absolutely nothing like it used to be. There is something spectacular about that. And if you are here or you are online and you've not yet fully embraced Jesus, and by that I mean you've just said, I'm all in. I surrender my life to you completely. I don't even know what that totally means, but I'm going to do it by faith. I'm going to surrender my life to you in full, and I'm going to acknowledge that you are the only means by which I can be forgiven and right by God, and that this is at the heart of why you went to the cross. And I ask you to forgive me based on your actions on my behalf, to cleanse me, to redeem me. These are big Bible words, to atone for me. And I, I'm in relationship with you because of that. That word is for you. And I would suggest that's rather inviting. My friend Matt Boda has said this, you will be forever ruined for the ordinary, because you have a life in Christ. I don't think, isn't that a cool statement? You will be forever ruined for the ordinary because you have a life in Christ. And so God says, give me your life, Abram, now Abraham. Give me your life, Scott, and follow me, and I will do all of this through you and for you. And again, in the words of my friend Matt, he says, this is like the greatest prenup that's ever been written. He does this before we do anything. And theologians call this, it's kind of a fancy word, pre-even, pre-ve- I don't even know if I can say it. It's, it's like convenient, except it's pre-convenient. Grace, I'm not saying it right. I screwed it up. Prevenient grace, there I got it. And it's this big theological concept that we see running all through Scripture. And if I could just put it in the simplest of terms, it, it, what it means is the God who is always previous. The God who is always previous. In other words, he was, he is, and he always will be before we arrive and after we leave. And so we see this all through Scripture. God is the God who initiates God is the God who is constantly at work. God is the God who is always previous to any action we undertake. And so when we are prompted to change, it's only because God is the one who has prompted you to do this. When we come into relationship with Christ, it's because previously he has loved us and previously he has wooed us first. When you are convicted about sin, it's because the Spirit of God 
has been convicting you and tapping you figuratively here on the shoulder. When you decide to do something for someone, it's because you have already received God's nudge. And so just let's speak real practically. You have a friend, he has a, has a big deal and he ends up in the hospital and you kind of jump in your car to go over and see your friend. And as you're going, you're wondering, what do I do? What do I say? Understand that God has gone before you. There are, as Polsky says this all the time, there's no surprises with God. Because he's already there. And he was there previously. And so you can stop as you're driving to the hospital and you're saying, I don't know what to do. I'm not really sure what to say here. And sometimes the best thing is to say very little, by the way. But you can ask God and just say, help me. Nudge me. I know you're already there. I know what you, you want me to do. So would you nudge me, God, and show me what to do? Prompt me with how I should respond. Prompt me with what I should say. Because he's always the God that's previous. The God that has this. I don't have to wonder. I wonder if God's got this situation. God's already in the situation. He was there previously. He knows what's coming. He's got this. And so the almighty, all-sufficient God makes us into people we would never become naturally on our own. Last week, I invited you to just consider, um, and we're not really in the business of naming God per se, but if you had a personal name for God that's just reflective of what he's done in your life, what might that be? And so maybe it's Emmanuel, like we did in the first week in this series where we said Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. And we said, he's, he's with us every day, everywhere, all the time. And then Daryl talked to us about Jesus, the word. And we said, Jesus is the messenger who has the message, who is the message. And then we looked in the third week at Jehovah Jireh. God is the God who provides. Then last week, we looked at El Roy, which is Uh, The story of Hagar and Ishmael, he is the God who sees you, the God who hears you, the God who calls you by name. And perhaps it's El Shaddai, the God who nourishes, the God who provides, the God who is almighty God amongst all of the gods. 